bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 48 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Matson. Hi, from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello, from Minneapolis. And my name is Ben Sherman from Houston, Texas. And this week on our show, we have a special guest, and that's Jonathan Penn. So, Jonathan, can you uh, introduce yourself so the folks out there know who you are? Yeah, um, I uh, am known for doing a lot of iOS development. I write at a blog called CocoManifest.net. I've uh, been uh, running a company with my cohort, Josh Smith. We uh, run Rubber City Wizards to do mobile consulting and training and uh, book writing. And uh, we just started a blog called MemoryPressure.com. Trying to stay busy, you know. And uh, we uh, are in the process of releasing a beta book through the Pragmatic Programmers about SpriteKit. We're pretty excited about that. Awesome. Yeah, so SpriteKit is the topic of the day. So just a little background. I guess if you wanted to do 2D games a couple years ago, Coco Studio was probably your best option. And I spent a fair amount of time with Coco Studio. We did a, a game in it. Um, I did a lot of tinkering with it. It seemed like SpriteKit is like totally inspired by Coco Studio. I don't know if you have any like comments on that just to get started. Yeah, there's um, quite an uncanny resemblance in the APIs. And from what I understand, there was someone who, I mean, a lot of this is just hearsay and criminology, you know, that that we do on the outside of the the Cupertino castle. But uh, from what I've heard is that they hired some people who were involved, who at least contributed or or been part of the Cocos 2D community to help them rethink how it would look to have a very well-integrated game development platform as part of the Coco world. And that's how this was born. Yeah, so you have, I guess, the normal classes that you would sort of expect if you're doing a 2D game. You've got like a scene and a a scene graph with nodes and you can do animations. And I don't know, like, where should we start? Maybe like a Hello World walkthrough and Sprite Kit? (laughs) Sure. Probably the biggest thing, Josh and I have done some workshops with the CocoConf conference tour. And as we've been teaching Sprite Kit, we've seen a lot of common questions asked by newcomers to the whole situation. And the biggest one is, what the heck is a scene graph? (laughs) And for people who do a lot of iOS or Cocoa development and familiar with Apple's certain flavor of model view controller and the way that they at least tend to encourage us to structure our applications with a view and view controller layer to help the display and transition of things and some sort of model layer that goes on behind the scenes that maybe your database and network layer, stuff like that. When people come to SpriteKit and they see like, wow, you're the ship. If you have a spaceship game, the ship has its position. It also has damage values and maybe its speed and stuff like this. Like, where's the model? Where's the view? And what we kind of help people understand is that with the scene graph, which is a different paradigm to organize your code and the the cognitive process of writing uh, 2D games, the scene graph represents everything. It's kind of like the state of the game, as well as what the game engine uses to decide how to render things to the screen. And the scene graph is, like you said, you start with a scene at the bottom, and then you have these nodes, and nodes might have child nodes, and everything's a node, even the scenes down at the very root of this whole graph. And uh, that whole node tree helps the rendering engine know how to lay everything out. It knows what's relative to what other things in different coordinate systems. If you have a bunch of nodes that are all child nodes of a super node, you can apply transformations, scaling, rotation to that super node, and everything inside it just rotates along with it as if it was all its own sub-scene in some certain ways. So all that together makes it really easy to structure a game so that you have different parts, like, you know, the high score display, you've got your enemies, you've got your base, you've got, you know, whatever, and you're trying to structure the entire game using the scene graph as like a big tree. 
So in that sense, it's not really unlike the view hierarchy in iOS. No, yeah, not at all. It's very, very similar to the view hierarchy. It's just that in this case, the state of the game, it's okay if the state of the game is wrapped up in the scene graph as well. Like a lot of people think, oh, should we pull the game logic like out into a model layer? And that's not necessarily wrong, especially if you say you have an artificial intelligence you're trying to do to make certain enemies move, you might want to make that reusable as different NS objects. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But as far as like encoding the state of the game at its current point in the scene graph is part of its charm and part of the way that 2D games are envisioned as people code them. I think one of the things that attracts me to game development is so different from your day-to-day just, you know, forms over data, web pages or iOS apps, that it's just a different way of style of software development and can totally stretch, you know, your notions about how software should work. And it definitely depends on the context. And game is certainly a way to just have a stark contrast of what you do day-to-day, unless you're a game developer. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So maybe we could talk a little bit about drawing, like what types of things can you draw on the screen? The simplest and most common way to draw is to use images as textures. The term they call them are sprites. You have these special kind of sprite nodes that take images and then they become things that are just on the screen. You can move them around by changing their position. They have an intrinsic size. You can change the size if you want to make it look like a, you know, bigger or smaller, rotate them, things like that. These are individual nodes in their own right. They just happen to be visually represented by a texture and then you can use them as standalone or combine them in different ways on a scene. Is PNG like the best format to choose for this or is there something more appropriate? Apple has chosen to make PNG the way to go. They already have a set of tools in Xcode to optimize PNGs for mobile devices and the Sprite Kit engine is optimized to take PNGs and turn them into OpenGL textures under the hood to make all that magic work. Okay, interesting. And any like particular type of PNG, like should you go for like the 8-bit with alpha, alpha transparency if you can get away with it or 24-bit is usually the norm? It doesn't really matter because Xcode's PNG Cruncher, I think that's actually what it's called. There's a build step when you build an iOS application that actually takes any PNG you tossed into Xcode as part of the bundle. It'll take it and mash it into a completely different byte structure that's optimized to load quickly on iOS devices. So it doesn't really matter. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I'm familiar with PNG Crush because there's a utility you can download from Apple as well. And if you ever like crack open an IPA, not a beer, James, but an actual IPA bundle. <laughs> if you crack that open and there's a bunch of PNG files that you actually can't open in Finder unless you uncrush them first. And I used to use a utility. It was actually a little Ruby script that would go through in an IPA, like unzipped payload and uncrush a bunch of PNGs. But uh, nowadays I use the Slender app, which sort of does that a lot easier. But enough about that. Okay, so you mentioned that it gets converted to an OpenGL texture. So this is definitely going to be like more performant than throwing views around and doing game development with UI views, right? Yes, yes. And I've done game development with UI views for some educational games, and it works up to a certain point because a lot of there's a lot of similarities. UI views, the whole subview hierarchy, each view has its own coordinate system. There's some actual benefits to doing a UI view based game in that every view also can have its own gesture recognizer and some of the touch handling can be Apple's thought through how to break that up for user interfaces. But with the way UI views are drawn and the way the math all works, there's a lot more going on. So the more views you have, the slower the machine will get. You'll hit the limits very quickly with UI views. And that's where using things like SpriteKit 
it's just optimized to the hill for shoving these textured sprite nodes around as fast as possible with the least amount of friction to the system so that you can get, you know, a whole variety of frenzy happening on the screen to, you know, delight the player and all that stuff. Do you have to exhibit the same sort of caution when doing like layer transparency? You know, pretty common. You're not going to have like a perfect rectangle sprite. You're going to have some sort of transparency in your sprites and, and it's going to have to blend that with the background. And I know OpenGL makes that it's optimized for that, you know, to composite things together. I'm just wondering if there's uh, similar considerations we have to make when doing uh, transparency on our sprites. There are some. I've been able to tax SpriteKit with the more transparent pixels you have in a texture or in a, in a PNG image that you use. It does take more work to blend that with the things behind. You can tax SpriteKit with more transparent textures than not, but it takes a lot more to cause a problem than it does in UIKit. I mean, it's built to be you can throw a lot at it. <laughs> like it's, You don't have to worry about that too much unless you have huge textures. There are ways of constructing your game where you don't have as many sprite nodes there as you try to remove things that you don't need when they're off the screen. SpriteKit also has its own optimizations to try not to draw things that it can tell aren't visible either. But th there are hints you can try to do to, to make that a little better. But for the most part, I mean, you don't really have to think about optimization until you start reaching a problem. Or if you know off, you know, as you start the game that you're going to have 10,000 nodes to represent what you're trying to do, you, you might want to rethink things. But for a lot of people experimenting, don't worry about it. It's mm -hmm. not a big deal. I mean, it seems like a lot, like if you have a spaceship game and you've got like your spaceship player at the bottom and you've got, uh, you know, 12 or so spaceships at the top, kind of like space invaders, and then you're shooting bullets. I mean, we're still under 100 nodes, but if you start adding in particles into the mix, I'm wondering if, you know, if it's easy to get above that 10,000 number that you just tossed out with things like particles. I mean, the good news about particles is at least the way you can implement your own particles, quote unquote, really all they are are just their own individual nodes that travel like particles, you know, for an explosion or smoke or something like that. But Apple has a, a special optimized particle emitter that uses an even lighter weight type of node than you can create with the API that Apple's provided. And it, you can get, you know, a thousand particles on the screen with even less of a performance hit than if you were to draw a thousand sprite nodes yourself. So that, I mean, if you're using Apple's particle emitter, don't worry about it. You're, you're not going to hit much of a ceiling at all. But there is a caveat. The ironically, even though when we use the simulator to do iOS development, we're usually told to be careful because the simulator runs faster on the Mac than the devices. So you have to do performance testing on the device because it might be slower. Right. I mean, you're I talking about drastically different hardware there. Yes. But the funny thing is the rendering pipeline on iOS for OpenGL is so well tuned that the emulation of OpenL, OpenGL ES in the simulator is slower than the device. So if you start experiencing slowdowns, don't give up yet. You should be testing it on, you know, the oldest device you plan to support just to see if it's possible that you're not even causing a hiccup at all on the device itself because there, you know, there's not an emulation layer like you have on the simulator. And we should point out that like if you use the sprite kit sample that it shows you the frames per second counter on there, which you should pay attention to for, I guess, throughout development just to make sure that you're meeting your target frame rate. Yeah, yeah. And and that, that frame rate is kind of like a guide. It'll dip up or down depending on different things that you're doing. Really use that as a, as a way of kind of taking the temperature of your game. It'll tell you too how many nodes you have on the screen. If you've got 600 nodes and your frame rate drops to 50 frames per second for a few seconds here or there, it may not be that bad. Um, but if it drops consistently to 40 or 30 frames a second, then you might want to rethink how you're calculating things and maybe batch operations and stuff like that. I assume that SpriteKit gives you a nice game loop that you can, you know, run 
calculations like physics or I don't know, collision detection or, you know, am I out of lives? Do I need to do game over? Things like that. Yeah, the update loop is great. It's also for people who who've used to the normal event polling or the event notification mechanism of standard UIs, the event loop can be kind of confusing to newcomers. You literally get a special method that's called on your scene every frame. And you can do all sorts of magic in there, like move things around, check for, like you said, check for collisions or player death, player success, whatever, and do the work you need to do to help the game keep going. I wonder how checking for collisions, which you mentioned, works. So, I mean, do you have to go through your entire scene and look at every object and do some test on geometry, or is there some help for that in SpriteKit? That's a great question, and it depends on your goals. At the simplest level, you can ask a node to give you its calculated frame, which is a rectangular, you know, the rectangular region that it takes up, including all of its subnodes, everything that's taken up inside that node that you see. And then you can do simple rect intersection to check for things. If you know that you only have enemies and then there's your player, so you would just loop over all your enemies and check for intersection in some ways like that. That doesn't always work because you, I mean, it all depends on your goals. Doing pixel perfect collision detection is a very hard problem. SpriteKit doesn't have that built in. At that level, you kind of have to decide, you know, what's close enough to make this a problem. But there's also a whole different mechanism of collision detection if you use the physics engine that's built in. This is new for Cocos 2D people because they're used to either having to pick box 2D or chipmunk and then live with their decision for the rest of their game and then try to figure out, figure out how to integrate it into their system. With SpriteKit, there's a physics world already on your scene. You don't create anything. You just create physics bodies, attach them to your nodes with a certain, the bodies have a certain boundary, whether it's a circle or a you know, rectangle or whatever. And then you can let the physics engine tell you when these bodies touch. That's a different class of situation. Like in some cases, that's really useful, but it also means that you're now writing a physics game, which is not every game is a physics game and you don't have to get into that. It all depends on your goals, but that can be really useful too. And in that way, you do get nice edge detection out of the box. You just have to now deal with the whole physics body world and worry about the bit masks to decide which bodies are allowed to overlap or intersect and which bodies should respond to each other. You then also have to deal with what happens when they bump into each other. The physics engine tries to oblige and says, oh, I should make them bounce or whatever you know you may not want that either it depends on your game mechanic but if you do are doing a physics game use the physics engine for collisions and you're fine it'll just work is this a sprite kit physics engine or is this something like ui kit dynamics it's not ui kit dynamics it's its own thing welded into sprite kit although the technorati have dug into the system and found out that both ui kit dynamics and sprite kit are linking in box 2d at least at the current time so that's uh, you know they share that common heritage but they are very different systems now ui kit dynamics isn't even really it's not a physics engine in the classical sense because you don't have access to a lot of things and you only have rectangular bodies but with sprite kit's physics engine it, it feels more like what you'd see if you were used to using box before there's some things that are kind of hidden away that you don't get a chance to touch but you know for the most part it's you'll be very familiar with it if you've done other physics engine work Cool. So I guess we've covered a little bit about drawing and the update loop. Uh, what about user input? You mentioned, you know, that with UI views, you get tap gesture recognizers and things. I'm guessing that we don't have UI gesture recognizers on SpriteKit. Nope. I understand why, because the whole responder chain and then detecting hits within, you know, sub views is part of why UI views have a lot of weight to them. That makes them heavier, That you know, why you'd want to maybe not consider them for a game. But man, it's nice. I do miss having gesture recognizers. <laughs> Everything in SpriteKit lives inside a UI view. 
And you can have a gesture recognizer on that UI view and then respond to it. You would have to delegate what the gesture recognizer tells you down to your scene. Like literally, you'd register to receive the gesture recognizer events and then you'd say to the scene, hey, you got tapped here. And then the scene would would respond to that. So it's possible to use them, but you can't attach them to individual nodes. Um, you have to go look up nodes that are around wherever the finger is and then decide what to do with them. And that's the same situation it was with Cocos. At least they, they did have every node could have its own touches began methods. So there was lower level touch handling. In SpriteKit, they chose to say that only the scene can receive raw touch events like touches began, moved, and ended. And then if you want your node to do something, you have to establish some API with that node that you then call and say, oh yeah, you were tapped, um, blow up, or whatever it's supposed to do. So and it's, a, it's a little bit of a bummer, but in some ways, you know that your, your it game... It seems like it's sort of like acting almost like a controller, you know, that your input is handled in one place and then, and then passed on. I could see that it could potentially be a mess if you had input handling just sort of federated out a bunch of objects... I don't know. And a lot of times the input depends on other nodes in the scene, right? So if one node may not know about all of its sibling nodes. Yeah, in many ways, the scene is like the traffic cop for real that receives information about all the other nodes and then makes decisions about what should happen. I've constructed things where I've had nodes know about each other, or I might write methods on them to say, hey, you know, this thing is here nearby, do something different. But for the most part, the scene is really the one directing everything, passing touches along, interpreting events, reading the state of other nodes to decide what to do, and you kind of have to you know, factor your game out from there. Uh, so since the scene is the one that handles like touches began, touches ended, typically in a, in a UI kit application, you would do something like touch location in view, and you pass maybe self.view if you wanted the location in your outer view, but you could also do pass in the location inside of a different view and it would give you whether or not that point was inside that view. Is that something you can do similar with nodes? Right, yeah. And, and that happened because each subview has its own reference point, its own origin, you know, local mm -hmm. coordinate system. So the good news is that works out of the box with SpriteKit too. There's a Apple added a location in node method to UI touch.